Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Good morning and welcome to Bible Center. I am Pastor Mike. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. So the thing that I'm always thinking about is how do we connect people to the church and to Jesus, help them grow in their relationship with Jesus, and then how do they share that faith with other people? Uh, This morning, as John mentioned, we're finishing up our July series on how God is transforming the hearts of his people. And I look forward to jumping into that as we study Psalm 80 together. But before we jump into the sermon, I just want to take a moment and make sure that all of you feel fully aware and prepared for our next steps in voting for a lead pastor. The elders have put John King, Pastor John King forth, as their candidate for lead pastor. And on August 13th, The way it's going to work is everyone who's a member at Bible Center, if you've gone through the membership process and completed that process, you'll have the opportunity as you walk into our lobby, we'll have three different tables out front, and we'll have elders out there. What you'll do is you'll come in and you will sign your name on our official membership list right beside your printed name, and you'll receive a ballot. You'll come in here and you can think through what you, how you want to vote, and then Dr. Paul Legg will come up right before the sermon and lead us in praying, preparing for the vote, and then we will vote. Deacons will come up and they will collect those ballots during the first service and then during the second service, and then they'll be counted all together after the second service. Once the second service concludes, likely because it's just voting yeses and nos, we will have a conclusion and the results of that vote. As you were processing that with the Lord and thinking about that with your spouse and having conversations, I just want you to know a little bit about John from my perspective. John and I started here together July 1st, 2017 on the same day. I've probably spent time with John almost every single day for the last six years. So some of you have just gotten to know John a little bit here and there, have had a few interactions I've seen John at his best, I've seen John at his worst, and all of his in-betweens. A couple thoughts. John has an uncanny ability to see how all the different things connect in our ministry. Uh, I was kind of a newer guy to a church this size. I was a part of a smaller church, and I would do something, say something, or act in a certain way, and John would just stop me and say, hey, do you realize you gave that person over there a black eye? I'm like, what are you talking about? I was talking to this person. I couldn't connect all the dominoes. John's just a guy that sees how things work together, which is a wonderful thing for an organization in a church this size. John is also an incredible collaborative leader. He always pulls a bunch of people in the room to help us think through stuff together, to pray through stuff together. Uh, That collaboration and that humility to lead that way will be better for our church. It will strengthen our church and the people in our church. Also for John, he does an incredible job taking care of our staff team. He shepherds people well. He loves people well. But as an executive pastor, he really had to focus all his time on the staff team. What happens if John gets to move into this lead pastor role is he will then focus all that shepherding energy, that love and that compassion, that desire to take care of people onto the congregation, which I think will be an incredible opportunity for you to see how much he cares well for people. Uh, If you know John and I, we are very different personality-wise, the way we talk, the way we do things, we're just different. And we are very good friends, and I love working with John. I wouldn't want to work with any other person. So on August 13th, when I walk in here, I cannot wait to vote yes for John. I think God has been preparing John for this 
for almost his whole life. And I look forward to serving with John and report to John and continue to grow and learn from John throughout the course of this process. So that's how I'll vote. I'm super excited for what God has done and where God has taken us. This last year and a half has been incredible. God has done incredible things here. We've seen over 60 people baptized just this year alone. That's more than we've seen in an entire year since we've been here. Groups are growing. The youth ministry is growing. God is doing incredible things, and it's already been under John's leadership. So my prayer and hope is that God continues to grow us, to change us, and to use us. Um, And for any of you who are still trying to process through, how do I make this decision? What's the, the best way to vote or to think or to pray towards this end? I would love for you to come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. John's always available. We love to pray with you, help you think through things, and answer questions. In fact, before we even jump into the sermon, this is a big thing for our church. So if you would, just take a moment with me. Let's just pray for the process. Let's pray for John. And let's pray for God's will. Father, we come before you. And in two weeks, we get to vote on John as the lead pastor. And Lord, I pray in those moments between now and then that you would give us clarity that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us direction. Lord, this is your church. We serve in this church according to your desire and will. And Jesus, you ultimately are the lead shepherd and we serve under you. So I pray for the members and the congregation here and the leaders and the elders and for John that you would give us direction that would be obvious and clear and that we would have moments of celebration along the way to see you continue to work in your church and in your kids. In Christ's name, amen. If you would, jump into Psalm 80 with me. The topic today is praying for transformation. So we've looked at a couple different aspects of transformation, how God works in individuals, how God works in people. In Psalm 80, we get a picture of how we are to pray for change, growth, and transformation. Some of the things that we're gonna learn Uh, from Psalm 80 and from scripture in general, is that typically, as Christians, we tend to grow in the valley more than we grow on the mountaintop. We tend to grow in the valley more than we grow in the mountaintop. We tend to grow in the storms of life more than in the sunshine of life. We're gonna see that played out in how we're called to pray. When it comes to reading and studying a psalm, a psalm is an interesting thing because psalms are words from God given to us to then pray back to God. The words from God given to us to pray back to God. And this particular Psalm is called a communal lament, a communal lament. So the people together would sing these words back to God. And a lament typically has this type of a a focus and a movement. It goes from expressing their sorrow to having a request or a petition, and then it usually ends in praise. And this psalm has some of those components to it. So as we work through Psalm 80, we're going to look at three huge prayers that the psalmist puts out, and then we're going to study it together and then conclude. The first big prayer from verses 1, 2, and 3 is, God intervene. God intervene. In verse 1 it says, and as you look at that verse, you're going to see some things underlined, and you're going to see some things in bold. The things underlined are the requests that the psalmist is making. The psalmist here is Asaph. His name is Asaph, and he's requesting a few things. And then in bold, we see how he describes God. And both of these things matter as we start this psalm. 
Verse one says, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, awaken your might, come and save us. Much of the heart of the psalm is seen in this intro. Right from the very beginning, there's just these admissions of both trust and need. And they're seen in the descriptions of God that he gives and is seen in the requests of God that he makes. The first description there is shepherd. John read from John 10 today. Like there's this, (coughs) excuse me, this reality that the Lord functions as our shepherd, our protector, the one who guides us, who knows us by name, who takes us to green pastures, who leads us beside still waters. The Lord is our shepherd. But then he also says that he leads Joseph and the flock. So he's not the type of shepherd who likes sitting on logs and stroking his beard. He's not that kind of a shepherd. He's the type of shepherd that has direction and purpose for the sheep. He's going somewhere. So he's shepherding and he's going and he's leading the sheep somewhere. And that's how the psalmist seeds God. And he goes on to say that he is enthroned between cherubim. This is a picture of the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. It's this picture of God and his almighty characteristics and power. Like he sees him as a shepherd who's gentle, but he's also saying, and you are the God of the universe. Cherubim are powerful angelic beings and God sits above them is how he's also viewed here. And when he looks at his shepherd, this all-powerful God, he starts making some requests He says, hear us, hear us. I know you're our shepherd. I know you dwell above all things, but would you hear us? Sometimes that's a request that we need to make with the Lord. We feel distant. We feel disconnected. So sometimes the way we need to start our prayers are the same way. God, would you hear us? Would you bend waist and turn head and give ear? Would you hear us. And then he says, shine forth, awaken your might. There's this picture, there's this request that God would be active and present and moving, that they would visibly see the presence of God around them. And finally, he says, come and save. He's asking for action. So a prayer for transformation starts with a plea for God's active and intimate presence. Verse three, verse three says, restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now this verse, I would argue, and most commentators would argue is the central verse of the entire Psalm. It's repeated three times. It's here in verse three, it's in verse seven, and it's in verse 19. So we're going to go after this verse hard when we get to verse 19, but just to give you a, a little intro to the verse, The words restore us are interesting. As you look at your translation, it might not say restore us. It might say, turn us again. It might say, cause us to repent, oh God. So in the first two verses, he's identifying and describing what God is like. He's beginning to make some requests of God based upon what he's like, but here it changes very quickly to, would you turn us? God, would you change us? 
And that's the heart of the psalm. It's repeated over and over and over again. So as he's asking God, because we're gonna see they are in dire straits. The people of God are struggling. They're hurting. The circumstances are very tough. But the core of this prayer of transformation is, but would you change us? Would you move our hearts? Would you transform us from the inside out? The second part of the psalm and the second prayer that we see is we saw God intervene. Now we see God, why? God, why? And the psalmist is about to ask God some really hard questions. And again, the psalms are examples for us of how we are to talk to God. So when we see the psalmist leading us and asking hard questions, we're being given an example of how we can and should talk to God, even in our hardest moments, perhaps when we're most frustrated. He says in verse four, how long, Lord, God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? How long? Why? Now he uses the names, Lord, God Almighty, which is Yahweh Sabaoth. Lord, my close personal covenant God, Yahweh, that's what that name means, Sabaoth, God of hosts, God of the heavenly armies. So even in that description, in that name, he's saying the God who I can trust, shepherd, but also the God who is in charge of and rules and runs all things, including the armies of heaven itself. How long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? That word anger there is interesting. It's a picture of like a dark cloud kind of rising from God. So the picture there is the psalmist praying, and as he's talking to God, he's saying, basically, why is there this dark cloud between you and I? Why is your anger simmering and smoldering in such a way that I can't get my prayers through to talk to you? Why are you so angry? It doesn't get easier. Verse five and six, he says, you have fed them, that is the people of God, with the bread of tears. And notice he's talking to God. He's saying, you have done this. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. So the current situation, according to what the psalmist sees, and of course, he only sees what a man can see, is that God seems angry. God is not answering the prayers, at least not the way they want God to answer the prayers. Israel seems weak. Israel is suffering. And their enemies are like prowling lions waiting to go after their prey. And Israel is almost a carcass at this point. And the psalmist is overwhelmed. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 12, why? God, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by just pick its grapes? The walls are down, the defenses are down. It's like you having that garden at home. And you know how many deer live around here. And there's nothing to stop the deer from just eating the whole garden. You're like, why? Why is this happening? I do want to take a moment and acknowledge the fact that the psalmist is right. 
when he asked God, why have you torn down the walls? When we did our sermon on Nebuchadnezzar, next week when John teaches on Ezra and Nehemiah, we're gonna see that it is God himself who's raised up the enemies of Israel to come in and to devastate Israel. It's by the hand of God that the punishment came. The walls were torn down because of him. We've seen throughout scripture, and we'll see here as well, though, that God does that because he loves his people and it's what's best for his people. But yeah, the psalmist in that moment is wondering and questioning why. Here we are thousands of years later looking back on it and we can see how God works this out for the good, how God draws his people back to himself in those moments. But if you're sitting there and you have no wall surrounding you and you see enemies all around you and you're suffering and you feel weak, you're not gonna feel the way that we feel now in 2023 looking back on it. Where have you gone? Why are you so angry? Why are you allowing us just to be exposed in front of our enemies? The feelings would be real. They would be visceral. You'd be overwhelmed. He describes the land and he says, boars from the forest ravage it and the insects feed on the fields. God, our defenses are down. God, people are taking advantage of us. God, we are insecure and God, we are in danger. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever looked at God and just said, how long? Why are you letting me go through this? Why are you making me go through this? This broken relationship, this pain, and it could be physical outwardly or it could be emotional inwardly. How long, oh God? Do you ever ask why? Why did this happen to my child? Why did this happen to my spouse? Why did this happen to me? I had the opportunity several years ago to lead several groups. They were discipleship groups. And we spent some time in those groups, about 30 minutes each, talking through our life stories. You would not believe the kind of pain that people are going through. I just know being in several groups, listening to like 35 different stories, a large percentage of those folks had had thoughts of just taking their life. I don't know if it's you today, but if it's not you today, it's someone beside you, it's someone in front of you or someone behind you is struggling with really hard stuff, deep thoughts, dark thoughts, anxiety that might feel completely overwhelming. It is normal in this life for us to ask hard questions because we're gonna go through hard things. How long and why is part of the way that we talk to our God when we're asking God to transform us what I appreciate about the psalmist here is he's normalizing these feelings. He's normalizing the fact that we can ask God these things. Sometimes I think we're afraid to have an honest conversation with God. And I want you to know he's big enough. I don't know if God can handle all this. Yeah, he can. He can handle all of it. Like there's nothing you can say that's going to overwhelm him or push him or make him question his decisions. Like you can come at God and the psalmist is doing it right here. Why did you do this? Who do you think you are? You can have those types of conversations with God. That's what the psalmist is teaching us here. Part of being transformed is honesty with God. Part of being transformed is honesty with God. So the first thing we learn when we ask that God would intervene 
is that we go to God and ask for his presence and we want him involved. The second thing we're learning here is that we go to God about all the hard stuff. We ask the hard questions, the big things and the little things. So I just threw at you about a, a lot of hard stuff. And there's a lot of hard stuff in your life, but there's also the little things. Burned by coffee, you spill your coffee, that happens. Uh, you get cut off in traffic. I know I've got this goofy retaining wall outside of my house. The thing completely bowed, so I had got to spend lots of money to fix and get a new wall. So I had this new retaining wall. It looks great, okay? Right above the wall is this little brick pathway. So I tore out all the weeds from the brick pathway and I have this nice green grass in between the wall and the pathway. So after I tore out all the weeds, I thought, well, I'm gonna get this roundup. I'm gonna kill everything that could possibly grow between the bricks. So I sprayed it all down real nicely. Then it rained and it took the roundup that kills everything and pulled it down into that nice grassy area between the wall and the brick path. I no longer have grass there. It is now scorched earth. After spending thousands of dollars here and spending hours up there, now there's nothing in between. Is that a big deal? No, not really but I see it every single time I come home. So like, even in those things, God, why would you let me make that decision? Why? why? So in the big things and in the little things, what we learn here is we go to God. A couple quick thoughts about dark moments. Life is like a mariposa lily. You probably didn't think I was going to say that. Uh, life is like a mariposa lily. Do we have a picture of one? Just so you know what it is. There it is. Look how pretty that is. Your life is actually like that. This interesting lily grows in Death Valley. After it rains in Death Valley, it pops up for a short amount of time and it's beautiful. And then it quickly withers, it dies, and it's gone. Your life is like that. Your life is beautiful. And your life is difficult and your life is short. Your life is beautiful. You're going to have incredible moments in your life, things that give you goosebumps through your whole body, and life's going to be difficult. There's going to be times you just can't imagine the fact that you're going through what you're going through, and life is short. The Bible says it's like a vapor, like a mariposa lily. So in those moments when you feel overwhelmed, remember, you will have beautiful moments, and Jesus promises that you're going to have hard moments, but eventually those moments end in a forever with God. The second thing I want us to, to stick out about the hard moments is that God's favor does not equate to or equal to us receiving our preferred circumstances. God's favor doesn't mean that we get what we want, when we want, how we want it at all times. Because sometimes I think we believe that. Well, I wanted this and God didn't give it to me. Therefore, God must not be happy with me or I'm not happy with God. That's not the equation. You see God's favor in the fact that he's going to give you a forever home. You see God's favor in the forever reality because in the present situation, your circumstances are going to go up and they're going to go down and both are for your good. So when the circumstances don't work out the way you want them to work out, it's not because God doesn't love you or you don't have his favor. You're just looking in the wrong thing. You don't look at your circumstances for God's favor. You look at your forever home for God's favor because the circumstances will go up and the circumstances will go down. The third thought is that God works in and through our difficulties and our sufferings. We so often view the valley of death as the worst possible location to be, but in some interesting way, God tends to use those moments to grow us the most. 
C.S. Lewis says it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's in the hard moments, oftentimes where God does his work. In verse seven, he says, restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. There's that verse a second time. In verse eight, the psalmist is looking to God. He says, you transplanted a vine from Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. He goes on and he says, you cleared the ground for it and took, it took root and filled the land. What he's saying there is he's starting to look at God and he's asked all these hard questions. How long? Why? But then he starts looking at the past. And this concept of this vine here is the psalmist referencing God's people. It seems like everything's falling apart. The walls are down. Enemies are approaching. But you know what, Lord? I remember you took us out of Egypt. God, I remember you put us in the promised land. God, I remember that we grew there. Our roots went deep into the ground and we expanded and we filled the land just like you wanted us to. So what he's saying here is, God, you have been faithful. So even in his confusion about the present moment, he's drawn back to the reality that God has been faithful. Therefore, perhaps God is being faithful even in this moment. And perhaps we can trust that he will always be faithful. So the second thing that we're learning here about praying for transformation is that we're willing to go to God and ask the hard questions. God intervene. God, why? God, how long? The third section of the Psalm, uh, the prayer that just starts to come out of it is God revive us. God revive us. In verse 14, it says, return to us, God Almighty, look down from heaven and see, watch over this vine. When he says, watch over this vine, he's saying, look out for your kids. Remember your people. He says, return to us, God Almighty. I love this plea for God himself. So in this moment, he's not saying, God, build the walls. God, push back the enemies. God, give us a lot to eat. He just says, God, return to us. God, we want you this prayer is huge for us. So often we tend to pursue the hand of God, not the face of God. But what the psalmist is doing here is he says, I want you, God. Please, you return to us. It's so easy as American Christians to get confused between the presence of God and the presence of God, the gifts of God. Like we want his presence, his active presence in our life, not just the things that he gives us. Those are not always the same thing. And the psalmist shows us that. In verse 17, there's this great picture. In verse 17, it says, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man that you have raised up for yourself. So he's just said, God, you have been faithful. And then he prays that prayer that God would return that he would watch over his vine. And now he says, look over that son of yours to your right hand. He's saying, I'm your boy. We're your kids. Don't forget your kids. Look out for us is what he's saying in this prayer. 
There's an adoration in this prayer. There's a confidence in this prayer. It's almost like the psalmist is looking at God and saying, Dad, he just wants to grab his leg. He's not waiting for permission. When your little child comes up to you as a dad or a mom, he just grabs you. She grabs you. That's kind of what we're seeing here is look out for the son of man that you raised up with your right hand. Verse 18, we're moving now towards the end of the, of the psalm and he says, then, then when you return to us, when you're deeply connected to your kids, then we will not turn away from you. When we have you when you return to us and we see your face and we have you, then in that moment, in that relationship, in that connection, in that intimacy, we will not turn away from you because we get to experience you and be with you and see you and then we will not turn away. Then he says, revive us and we will call on your name. Revive us. You've probably heard the term revival before. This is the prayer for something like that. Revive us. This word can mean several things. In your translation, you might see several different words there. But revive means to quicken, to make you live anew, to recover, to make you alive, to make you spiritually alive, to animate, to refresh. What this word gives us here is a picture of spiritual renewal an increase in spiritual vitality. Have you ever jumped into a cold shower? Maybe a cold lake or a stream? When you do that, you feel fully awake. Like every cell in your body is like, hey, yo, right? Like you are, and you're awake for like two straight hours. Like if you want to get a lot done, step into a cold shower and you will be awake. The dopamine kicks in, the adrenaline kicks in. Your body's like, I'm dying a little bit here, what he's asking for is, God, give us a spiritual cold plunge. Make every cell in my body aware of your presence, quickened to you, attentive to you, obedient to you. Waken me up from the inside out that everything inside of me is now focused on you, my God. And then in verse 19, <clears throat> he ends basically where he started. Here's the verse the third time. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This is the third time. So the first time he said, restore us, O God, verse three, which is restore us, Elohim, God creator. In verse seven, he says, restore us, God Almighty. Restore us, God of hosts. Here he says, restore us, Lord God Almighty. So every time he makes the request, he begins to say with more clarity, because I know who you are. Change us. Again, the word there, restore us, means change us, cause us to repent, do a work inside of us, Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, shepherd, Lord Almighty, the leader of hosts. You are king of all things. You lead the armies of heaven. And I want you, oh God, who's my shepherd and the king of all, to step in and to change and to transform us, restore us. So through this entire psalm, the psalmist's biggest concern has been the hearts of the people. 
Now, circumstantially, things are falling apart, but don't miss the fact that as things are falling apart, in a prayer of transformation, he says, change us. So even in your life, as things are falling apart, what should you pray for? Yes, you can pray for the circumstances, but don't miss out for the opportunity to pray that God would use these to restore, to change, to transform you, us. So the people of God who are committed to transformation pray for change, even in the hard moments. So the psalmist pleads for renewal, to be restored, to be revived towards our God. For us, for him, your circumstances are always changing, but God remains faithful. And I've said this once, I'm going to say it again. Oftentimes, the good days, the days where we have excess, and we get those here in America, and many of us here get those days where we just, we have all that we need. Those are typically not the days where we recognize our incredible, desperate need for God. It's in the hard days. It's in the down days. It's in the days of lack is often when you're drawn back to God. So sometimes the hard days, the dark days aren't actually bad days. Sometimes they're exactly the kinds of days that we need. And in those hard days, we pray for transformation. We pray things like God intervene. God intervene. We call out for God's active presence in our life. We pray, God, why? God, how long? We have open, honest conversations with our God about the hard stuff. We pray, God, revive us. Awaken us. Do whatever is necessary that we would focus our attention and love on you. God, restore us and change us. My prayer is that we as a church, we begin praying with consistency for transformation. My prayer and my desire is that we would pray, God, revive us, whatever that looks like and whatever that means. You're praying, God, take every cell in my body, wake them up so I would fall more in love with you. Whatever that looks like, whatever that takes. It would be a people who are being transformed by God to look more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And we come before you as your kids who need to be grown, need to be transformed. And so often, Lord, we come to you just mad about the hard days. And Lord, I want us to pray in those hard days. But I also want us to trust your faithfulness in those hard days. And I want you to just impress upon us the need for transformation and change even in and through those hard days because we trust you. God, continue to build your church. May those who are our disciples here make more disciples. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.